I want to talk this morning about the evidence of God's grace. The evidence of God's grace. Now, we've been speaking about evidence that follows a believer's life for the past number of weeks on and off. And uh, it's really important that we have evidence. It's important that we as believers have something different about us that is not just our personality. Not just a bubbly personality or a really good-looking person or something of that nature. We need to have something that is intangible about us. Something that when we walk into a room and after we've been there for a while, people look at you and they say, Wow, there is something different about you. I can't pinpoint it, but there's something different. That's the kind of evidence that we need to have. Amen? Do you believe that? Can you agree with that, that Christians need to have something different about them? Yeah, otherwise, what, what's, what's our point? How, what kind of light are we? We are the light of the world. We're the salt of the world. If we're not different than the world, then we're really not doing anything in the world, are we? There must be an evidence about us. And it's important that we examine our evidence every so often to make sure that it's there, to make sure that we have it. Now, where does this evidence come from? What kind of evidence are you expecting to see? We're going to talk about that a little bit today. There should be an inward evidence, and there should be an outward evidence. The inward evidence is very important because that's the evidence that Jesus is going to measure us by someday. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28, it tells us some scriptural references here about our evidence. It says, but let a man examine himself. And so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Now, this is in relation to communion. Prior to take, partaking in communion, each person is to examine their heart and make sure that they are lined up with God's word. Amen? That you, that you have a reason for taking that supper, that you are lining yourself up with, with the word of God, that you are lining yourself up with the blood of Christ, and that you've asked for forgiveness and you've been taking care of some things in your life. All right, so we are to examine ourselves. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, it says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Jesus, Christ Jesus is in you? <laughs> and here's an interesting caveat. Unless, of course, you fail the test. <laughs> so you're to examine yourself and test yourself. Is Christ really in you? Is Christ really in me? Just because I profess to be a Christ follower, is my evidence really lining up that I am a Christ follower? We need to examine ourselves. That's the inward evidence. What's the outward evidence? The outward evidence is the evidence that the world sees as we profess to be a Christian. As you profess to be a follower of Christ, there should be evidence that follows you outwardly that would prove that. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. He says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. That the pagans, that the worldly people, though they would love to find something wrong with you, 
though they would love to accuse you of doing something wrong, that because you're living such a holy, upright life, that they can't find anything. So if they find anything, they have to make it up, like they did with Jesus. You know, when he was on that day of his crucifixion, the Pharisees, they paid people to speak lies about Jesus because they didn't have any facts. So they, they riled up the crowd and they said, speak lies, we'll pay you. You know, that should be the way that you live, and I live my life. I should live my life such a righteous, not a self-righteous, but a holy, upright life so that if anybody's going to speak something bad about me, that they have to make it up. Can we do that? Can we do that? Can we live a life that holy that that's really the case? We're, we're talking about the evidence of God's grace. What is the evidence of God's grace? Well, first of all, Let's talk about the word grace. What exactly is grace? When you look at the word grace, when you look it up in the concordance, in the Greek it is charis. And it means the state of kindness and favor towards someone. Often with a focus on a benefit given to the object. I've also heard grace as defined as God's unmerited favor. God's unmerited favor towards us. See, and often grace is expressed to us in the form of salvation, that we are saved by the grace of God, meaning that we're saved by God's unmerited favor. And in all honesty, it's really not unmerited because Jesus merited our faith. Jesus is the reason that we have salvation. is because he bore my sin, and he took upon him my punishment, and he took upon your punishment for your sin. So really, our grace is by the grace merited favor of Jesus. But to me personally, it is unmerited because I can't do anything to obtain the grace of God other than just accept it because it's a free gift. So that's what God's grace is unmerited when we say by grace for salvation. And I thank God for that, don't you? I thank God for his, for his unheld back, uncontrollable grace that he says, I love you so much that I gave you my son. Now would you receive him? And when you do, my grace is upon you. My unmerited favor is upon you and you are forgiven of your sin and now you are adopted and you are a son or daughter into the kingdom of God and we're going to spend forever together. Doesn't that give you a little bit of excitement? Can't you just anticipate heaven a little bit when you hear words like that? That we're going to spend forever and ever in the throne room of heaven. And we're not going to have to worry about the taxes of this world anymore. The taxes as far as the financial taxes, nor the emotional and the physical taxings that's on us because of God's unmerited favor. That's awesome. Now, what's the evidence that follows that relationship caused by God's grace? There must be evidence that follows the grace, the unmerited favor of God in life. There must be evidence in our hearts and lives that we have it. Our text passage this morning goes back to Acts chapter 11. And I'm going to read beginning at verse 19. And we're going to read the fact that there are those that when God's moving, there is evidence. Beginning at verse 19 of Acts 11. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, 
spreading the word only among the Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, Gentiles, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And here's our text. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, the evidence, when he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for evidence. We thank you, Lord, that as you move in our hearts and lives, that the Holy Spirit creates a difference about us, not us creating it on our own, because we cannot do that. But we're depending upon the grace of God, the unmerited favor, and then the power of the Holy Spirit living within us and falling upon us as we are spirit-filled believers. And that you then create an evidence about us that would draw others to Christ. We thank you for that. Now, Lord, I pray that you would help us as we go through this little message here, that we understand more and more about what that evidence is. We ask that you'd open our hearts and open our eyes in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, first of all, it's important as we read this verse to realize that the beginning of the early church was being heavily persecuted. The devil was all about destroying the church. He did not want this church to continue on, did he? He thought he won when he killed Jesus on the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, the devil thought he won. And then all of a sudden, these little peon Christian people start rising up and getting filled with the baptism of the Holy Spirit and start witnessing to all, all the Judea areas and all the Samaria and all the world around. And all of a sudden, there's an undergrowth now of this resurrected Christ. Now, Satan is not liking this. So he's putting on the heat. He is putting on the persecution of the churches. And so now, what he, what he did to destroy and distract by persecuting the church, which means now that it's scattered. It's not just in Jerusalem any, anymore. It's scattered to all ends of the earth. And Satan again thought he was winning. But what Satan used to scatter, to destroy, <laughs> here's God. The power of God says, I love it, Satan. Thank you for helping me out here because that's exactly what I wanted these people to do. I wanted them to get out of their homes. I wanted them to get out into the world so they could preach the gospel through the whole world. And that's exactly what they did. So what Satan used to destroy, God used to build up. And do you know he does the same thing in your life? Do you know that Satan would come into your life to destroy you? And because you are a follower of Jesus, that Jesus says, ah, that's not going to destroy you. That's going to make you better. That's going to make your testimony stronger. That test you went through, that, that heartache you went through, that sickness, that financial ruin, whatever it is, what the devil used to destroy, I'm going to use it to bring glory to my name. Amen. That's evidence. That's evidence of the grace of God. Matthew Henry talks about this in one of his commentaries. The first preachers of the gospel there were dispersed from Jerusalem by persecution. That persecution which arose five or six years earlier at the time of Stephen's death, God suffered them to be persecuted, that thereby they might be dispersed in the world, sown as seed to God, in order to, bring in, or to their bringing forth much fruit. The enemy designed to scatter and lose them. Christ designed to scatter and use them. Amen. Evidence. 
evidence that God is on our side and as we are on God's side that he will build us up to bring him glory. Amen. All right. Now, verse 22 and 23, news of this reached the church in Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw the what saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad. Now, news of what? What did he really see there? What was so happening in Antioch that got back to Jerusalem? And this was before the age of Facebook. This happened through carriers. This happened through word of mouth. This wasn't over the Internet. Something was happening so much in, in Antioch that somehow the news got back to Jerusalem. What did he see? He saw the evidence of God's grace. Now, what does it look like? I want to talk about three major areas of evidence on God's grace that I want to focus on this morning. And they are, number one, the desire to live a life pleasing to God. Number one evidence, desire to live a life pleasing to God. Number two, bearing fruit in our works that involve other people. Bearing good fruit, bearing fruit, bearing much fruit in our lives that involve other people. And then number three, growing in Christ. Growing in Christ, personal spiritual growth and personal knowledge of God and personal and, and outward growth, inward and outward growth, two levels of growth, inward and outward. If we are going to ev have evidence of grace, of the unmerited favor of God in our life, we're going to have growth. We're going to grow. I want to speak about those three things today. And, and, and the verse I want to go to to help us speak this is Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 10. This is in the English Standard Version, by the way. Again, Paul speaking. He says, And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And here's, the, here's what I want to talk about. Verse 10. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him. Number two, bearing fruit in every good work. And number three, increasing in the knowledge of God. That's where I get the evidence from that verse. This verse has, been such, has become such an important verse to me. This is actually becoming my life verse. This is what I pray every morning. God, I want you to fill me with the knowledge of your will with all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to you, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. That's what I want my life to be. Because if I do those three things, evidence is going to come out of my life that I'm a truly a Christ follower. All right, number, number, number one, let's look at that. Desire to live a life pleasing to God. Verse Colossians chapter 10, or Chapter 1, verse 10. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. What does that mean? In this verse, to walk, to walk, means to live after the day of salvation. This comes after our, our salvation exper ex experience or our conversion experience. That we're to walk. It is not a means of salvation, but it is the walking out of a lifestyle of salvation. See the difference? We're not earning our salvation through our good works. We're not earning our salvation as by the way that we walk. No, our walk is a result of our salvation. So I'm walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to God. That doesn't, 
make me pleasing to God so that I can become saved. No, it is a result of my salvation. I'm so enthralled. I'm just like that new Christian. I am so energized by my new walk with the Lord now that everything I do, I want to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to you, Lord. That's my prayer. That's what I want in my life. That's evidence. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. For Christ's love compels us. Christ's love compels us. Because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for who? They shouldn't live for themselves anymore. But for who should they live for? For him who died for them. Who's that? Jesus. So now, therefore, I no longer should live for myself. Rather, I should be living for Jesus. That's what this verse means. That I'm so excited, I'm so, I'm so thrilled with my conversion experience that now I want to walk daily pleasing Jesus. Verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, and the new is here. Amen. See, we're no longer the same anymore, are we? The new, the old is gone. That, that old man that served the flesh is gone. Now, let's talk about this for a minute. That doesn't mean that I don't sin anymore. That would be unbiblical. But what that means is this. I am not a sinner saved by grace anymore. I was a sinner, saved by grace, and now I am a new man, I am a new creation, and therefore that sinful nature no longer lives in me. Therefore, when I sin, I'm not gratifying my old sinful nature. It's not natural for me anymore to sin. But when I was a sinner, it was natural to sin because I was what I was. But now that I'm saved... Now that I'm regenerated, now that the Holy Spirit lives in me, and especially when I have the second level of experience called the baptism of the Holy Spirit, now that rejuvenates me, that justifies me, that sanctifies me. So now my natural man, my natural, my natural occurrence now that I'm that way is not given over to sin. So that when I do sin, there's a quick conviction in my soul to say, take care of that. Take care of that. Don't let it take root. Don't let that bitterness take root. Don't let that sin fester. Don't let it boil up in you. That's what happens now because I'm a new creation. Therefore, now I'm wanting to take care of that sin right now. Whereas before, when I sinned, I would meditate on it and it would take root in me. And the Bible says that that's what the James says. That's when the sin is birthed in me and I think about it and it grows in me and it becomes sin and it becomes death. But now that I'm a new man... I'm a new creation, and I sin. I'm convicted. I'm not offended. <laughs> I'm not offended by a good word. I'm not offended by a Christian brother that comes to me and says, I see some evidence in your life that isn't quite lining up with a new creation. Are you okay? Are you doing okay? Yeah. See, I welcome that now because I want someone to come alongside me to hold me accountable. I don't want to drift down to my own ways of doing things. I don't want to drift down to my own justifications of justifying the sin because I'm not that person anymore. That's important, folks. That's really important. 
The true evidence of grace, the true evidence of grace is when grace is completed in us and our desires change. I think that we misuse the word grace an awful lot in Christian circles today. We say we live in the era of grace, therefore I have privileges. I have rights to live any way I want to live because I live under the grace of God, not under the law. True. But when grace is completed in me, it changes me so that I don't want to do the things anymore that I wanted to do before. That's grace. That's the unmerited favor of God in that my desires change. I am no longer that person that wants to do the things I did before. That's grace. That's the evidence of God's grace in that it changes me so now I am a new person and I want to do new things. Titus chapter 2, verse 11, starting at 11 through 14, it says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us here, the grace of God, listen to this, the grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Does that sound like the old man or does that sound like the new man? That's a new man speaking, isn't it? Eager to do good because the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation and then offers the walking out of that salvation. The grace or the favor of God is more than just the forgiveness of sin. Listen to this. It's so important that we grasp this. It's the complete process of the change of the person into a person that desires to sin no longer. Yes, we can't be perfect, but you know what? My desires can be perfect. And if you don't believe that, then you're not truly giving the, the Holy Spirit and the Lord opportunity to work in your life. Your desires can be perfect. The temptations are going to come. I'm going to tell you right now. You can't stop the birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from nesting in your hair. Right? You can keep them from nesting in your hair. You can chase them away. As soon as that bird hits your head, chase it away. That is a perfect intention. You can have a perfect desire to live for Jesus uncompromised. You don't need to deal with the worldly stuff. You don't need to get polluted like we talked about a few weeks ago. You can keep yourself unpolluted from the world if you so desire. You can do that. You don't have to give in to your old habits. You don't have to give in to that and say, oh, that's just the way I am. Nonsense. You're a new man now. The old man is gone. Thank you, Jesus. Titus chapter 3 goes on again, beginning at verse 1. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle toward everyone. At one time, before you were the new man, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God... The unmerited grace of God appeared. He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, 
But because of his mercy, he saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by what? His grace. You can read it with me. Justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope or the promise of eternal life. This is the trustworthy saying. And I want you to stress these things so that those who have, been, who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. Come on, folks. We have to do what is good. <laughs> it doesn't happen by accident. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. Amen. So, evidence number one of the evidence of God's grace is that I want to do good things, that I want to live a holy life, that I want to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. Evidence number two, bearing fruit in our works that involve other people. Colossians chapter 1, verse 10, second part of that, bearing fruit in every good work. Bearing fruit in every good work. We are to work, right? Yeah. There is things for us to do. We have activities. We have a job to do in the kingdom. Evidence of God's grace or favor in a Christian's life is a bearing of fruit or a making a difference in the lives of other people. James McDonald talks about this in a devotional that I read from him one time, talking about doing things. He says, helping falls in the same category. Help is not a feel thing. It's a do thing. If you were carrying bags of groceries in from the car, trip after trip, back and forth, and your friend stood and watched thinking, I feel so helpful right now. I want to be a helpful person. I'm working on the mindset of helpfulness. I'm imagining the positive feelings associated with helpfulness. You would tell your friend to quit thinking and grab a bag. <laughs> there is a, th this is a do thing. This is a do thing. This is not something where we just think about it on Sunday mornings and think, oh, I'm so good. No, no, no. We do things. You go out and work and you help people. That's evidence of God's grace is that we're doing things. John chapter 14, beginning at verse 9, Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you such a long time, anyone has seen, who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. This is a caveat. Or at least, Philip, believe on the evidence of the works themselves. So what, he's, what he's, Jesus is saying to Philip, Philip, if you don't believe my words, at least believe the evidence. Which speaks louder, words or action? Yeah, we can talk is cheap. We can talk up a great story, can't we? But if I can't fulfill it with the actions, then there's no merit in my words. Jesus obviously had merit. He could say, Philip, if you don't believe me by my words, then look at the evidence. Look at the evidence of my life. Come on, Christians, that's us. Are we Christ-like? Are we a Christ follower? 
then there should be evidence in our life that the world sees. Then he goes on, the very next verse, Jesus says, Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these. Ha! That's Jesus speaking. You and I are going to do greater things than Jesus did. Can you believe that? Can you believe that he would even say that? He's saying it because if you go on and read the next verse, he's going to the Father and he's going to pray for us. And he's going to enable us through his power. We're not doing those through our own. We're doing those through the power of God, through the power of the Holy Spirit. But we can do the things. So there is work to do. So that's the second thing. That's the second thing, that we are, we're making a difference in the people's lives because we're, doing, we're, we're producing fruit in our good works. Number three, the most important evidence of God's grace is growth. Colossians chapter 1, it says, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Increasing. It didn't say increased a one time. Yeah, I increased in God's knowledge one time. I read the Bible a while ago, and I increased in knowledge. No, no. What he's saying is, I am increasing. I am continually increasing in the knowledge of God. Do you know that God is so big that we'll never be able to explain him? We'll never be able to understand him? That makes my headache to think about it. But I'm going to spend all eternity trying to get my head around this God. And I'm going to be able to see him then. So how in the world can I do it now? I do it by getting into the Word, and we're going to talk about that. Now, growing in Christ. There's two kinds of growth I want to talk about here. Spiritual growth, and I want to talk about physical growth. Spiritual growth, personal spiritual growth, and I want to talk about physical, physical growth. Growth as evidence of God's grace is at least in these two forms. By physical, I mean numerical. I mean numerical growth. Now, you could look at me and say, Mike, look at our church. I don't see any big, I don't see us, th- th- that we're not, you know, busting out of the seams of our church. So you better be careful how you start talking here, Mike, about numerical growth and we're at, when our seats are more than half empty. But what, I'm, but what I'm talking about is this. What was the evidence down in the church of Antioch was that there was growth. There was growth that caught the church of Jerusalem's attention, so they sent Barnabas down to check it out. I'm going to tell you, folks, I see growth. I see new faces. I see new people. Yeah, we're not busting at the seams, but I'm telling you, we have growth. Is it, is it the rate of growth that I personally would like? No. But then I'm a man. What, what the Bible's not talking about is rate of growth. It's just saying growth. See, we men are bent on the rate of growth because it feeds my ego. I would love to have the biggest church in town. Then I could say, I am the best preacher in town. Everybody comes to hear me preach because I am so good. Look how big my church is. That's man's ego. It also is a sign of the times. It's a sign of the, of, of the end of the age because it says that in the end of the age... It says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2 through 4, it says, Preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers, a great number of teachers, not one, 
but a great number, that's a lot, of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn, away, they will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. What I'm talking about here is I know I'm politically on the bubble. I know that. I, I'm politically on the bubble quite often. The fact of the matter is seeker-sensitive churches might have a great rate of growth. But what are they preaching? What are they preaching? What are they teaching? What are their people walking away from with every Sunday? You see, if I want a good rate of growth, I'll preach things that are happy. <laughs> I'll make you all happy with me. I'll make you all want to like me. Come on. That's what I'll try to do. But you know what? My biggest fear is not you. My biggest fear is God. Because I'm going to stand before him someday, and I'm going to give him an account every time I stand up here. What did I say? And if I'm not pleasing him with the truth of God's word, if he says, Mike, who were you to say what you said? Who were you to compromise my word because you were afraid of the people? See, I'm like Andrea. I'm a young enough pastor to not know what I'm talking about. Because here, because no, because see, see if I, when, when I become a professional pastor, then I'm worried, worried about my salary. I'm more worried about making you happy so that you give me a Christmas bonus. I'm more worried about making sure I get a job next week. But I'll tell you what, I'm not worried about that. I love you so much. My heart is so much for this church. I don't care if you fire me. Fire me for telling the truth. I don't care. Fire me for telling the truth. I don't mean sermons to get heavy. I don't mean them to get hard, but I want truth to come through. I want truth to reign in this church. I want to be known as a church that tells the truth. And I'm not saying other churches don't tell the truth. Don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that other churches in this town don't tell the truth. I just want to be sure, make sure that I'm one that does. All right? I'm not measuring myself about another church. I'm not going out there. I'm not doing that. I'm not saying one is better than the other. I just want to make sure what I'm doing. I want to make sure that I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Amen. Spiritual growth is the important measure of growth because this is the growth that lasts for eternity. Physical growth, growth may fall off when you start preaching a hard word. Spiritual growth is the only growth that lasts. This is a growth that you'll take into heaven with you. This is the growth that you'll take before the Father, and he'll say, well done, thou good and faithful, because you listened and grew. What does spiritual growth look like? What does it look like? It's a hunger. It's a hunger for the things that result in growth. Now, how many know here, how many here have raised a boy? I'm going to pick on Scott and Dawn because they've raised a big one. 610. Now, did Zach ever go through eating spurts? 18 years of eating spurts. See, a growing boy or a growing person wants to eat all the time. They are a bottomless pit because their body is taking the calories and the energy from that food and it's converting it into growth things. 
<laughs> Whatever makes those bones grow, it's converting that food into things that grow that body, right? Eating hunger is a sign of growth. Now, how many also know that there is a spiritual hunger in a growing Christian? There is a spiritual hunger in a person that's growing for the Lord. Now, there may be a big spurt of growth as a new Christian when you don't know any better. But yet, older Christian, identify with me here a little bit. How has our appetite for godly things waned as we've gotten older? Come on. I know. I've been there. I spent more times in the pew than I spent up here. I understand that. I understand what it was. I can remember when I first got really resaved in my early 30s, when I really got, gave my heart back to the Lord back in Ferndale Assembly under Bob Bradley, how I got so hungry for the Word of God. I bought a Bible and I couldn't stop reading it. And it wasn't a few years later than that and I stopped. I didn't read it as much. Why? I got busy. I got busy with my job. I got busy with my family. I got busy doing good things. But I didn't, but I lost my first love, even after I got it the second time. Now, I'm a pastor. Now, I'm paid to do this. <laughs> so you can say, well, yeah, Mike, you've got to be hungry because it's your job. Well, let me tell you, when you stand before God someday, and he says, what was your spiritual appetite like? He's not going to look at your job. He's not going to look to see if you were a pastor because you know why? You're all pastors. You're all ministers of the gospel. You're all priests of your home, fathers. Every one of you dads are a priest of your home and you need to be feeding your children. And how can you feed them if you're not fed yourself? Come on, we're all, we're all pastors. We're all ministers to the lost. So when Jesus says, what was your spiritual appetite like? You're not going to have an excuse to say, I didn't have one because I wasn't the pastor. It's a hunger. Hunger is a sign of spiritual growth. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus at the beginning of the introducing the Sermon on the Mount, part of the Beatitudes says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. See, Jesus knew enough to bless those that were hungry. Not bless those that were full. No, he blessed the hungry ones. He blessed the ones that were hungry because they will be filled. He didn't bless them after they were filled. No, blessed are those that are hungry. Hunger is a sign of inner spiritual growth. Hunger for what? It's a hunger for the things that God's concerned with and a desire for us to learn as much as we can about God. It's a hunger to read God's word. It's a hunger to spend time with other Christians in Bible study. It's a hunger to have my own personal prayer life and Bible study. It's a hunger when I get around other Christians that I discuss godly things. The psalmist had a hunger for God's word. Psalm 119, go home and read all 173 verses or whatever, and you will see the hunger that the psalmist had here. Let me just read a couple of them for you. Psalm 119, verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. Verse 113, I hate double-minded people, but I love your law. Law 
can be considered teaching. I don't want to think that it's legalism here. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking law here in the Old Testament is really, it's, 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 a, it's a teaching more than a legalistic law. Psalm 1, verse 163, I hate and detest falsehood, but I love your law. Psalm 119, verse 165, Great peace have those who love your law, and nothing can make them stumble. Remember at the beginning of the, of the, of the service this morning, we said we are steadfast? My heart is steadfast. Why? Because I have great peace, because I love your law, and nothing can make me stumble. Why? Because I love the law. I love the teaching. I get into God's Word. I'm learning about it. You can tell a lot about a person when you sit down and have a discussion. Have a cup of coffee with somebody sometime and see where the discussion goes. See where the discussion ends up. If that person is a truly growing Christian with a concern for biblical things, somehow along the conversation, God's going to come up. He's going to come up. Yeah, you can talk about a football game. You can talk about the weather. You can talk about your job. That's fine. That's all good. Talk about your family. But you know what? Eventually, somewhere, God's going to come up. Because you know why? Because that's bubbling up. That's evidence. It's evidence of the grace of God coming up in our life. And eventually, something's going to come up. Now, do you see, do you see that this is an important part of evidence? Do you see it as an important part of evidence in a Christian's life? How is it, why is it so important? See, how can a person, if, if a person isn't into God's word, how can a person please a person if you don't know what that person needs to be pleased? Did I say that three different ways? Did I really convolute that? How, do you, how, how am I going to please you if I don't know what pleases you? Let me say it, that's easier. How can you meet the needs of a person if you don't know what their needs are? How can you communicate with them if you don't know their language? How can you enjoy being with them if you don't know what they enjoy doing? See, if I'm going to have a relationship with God, and if he's going to have a relationship with me, there must be this relationship back and forth. I must spend time with him. If I really want to know what, is God, what I'm supposed to be doing, the only way you really know is not by listening to me or any pastor. You get into the Word. You get in and you satisfy your hunger. You go in and you feed yourself God's Word because you have the right to do that and you have the responsibility to do that. Jackie, would you come and uh, we'll start winding this up a little bit. But do you get the picture? Does this make sense? See, as... as as we start looking at our lives and we start looking at the evidence of our lives, what is our spiritual condition? Are we like the church in Antioch that had so much evidence that the church in Jerusalem had to send a person down to see what was going on there? Is there so much evidence in your life that people are wondering, what's going on with you? Who are you? What's changed? What's different? Why are you such a different boss? Why are you such a different employee? Why do you, why do you work so well with people? See, we need to test ourselves. We need to test ourselves while we have the opportunity now to do the, where we can make the changes. Because if we wait, if we wait until we get to the final exam and we let Jesus test us, it's too late. That's why he says examine yourself. Examine yourself and see if you've passed the test. 
to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, unless, of course, you fail the test. Are you bold enough in yourself to look deep in your heart? Is that what you want? Or do you just want the easy life? Do you just want the easy Christian life, the the feel-good stuff? Well, I'll tell you what, let's be honest enough with ourselves this morning that we would get and do the hard work, that we would get involved and stay involved, that we would get into our Bible studies. If you're letting yourself fall into a comfortable zone of these things, then how many know what I'm talking about? A comfortable zone. If you allow yourself to fall into a comfortable zone, that's exactly what the enemy wants you to do. He's pulling your strings. He's controlling you if you allow yourself to fall into that comfortable zone. What is a comfortable zone? A comfortable zone is one that isn't challenged. It isn't pushed. It isn't motivated to do anything. A comfortable zone is say, you know what? I'm a Christian. I go to church. It's good enough for me. That's a comfortable zone. The devil loves comfortable Christians. Because a comfortable Christian isn't doing anything for the kingdom. A comfortable Christian is too worried about staying comfortable. Don't push me. Don't challenge me. See, when it becomes a zone of self, a comfortable zone, I get into a zone of self-justification in that I'm good enough just like I am. I'm better than the next guy. I don't do what they do. I'm saved. I've asked Jesus into my life. I'm comfortable with that. I don't need to get too involved. Come on, I'm too comfortable. I don't need to get that. I, you know what? I don't need to go to Wednesday after Wednesday Bible study. I don't need to go to Sunday school. I don't need to have a personal Bible study. I don't need to have a Bible study with anybody because I can do it on my own. You know what happens when you do things on your own? Deception can easily settle in. Self-deception can easily settle in, especially in the day we live in. Come on, folks. Especially when the day we live in. It is so, the devil is so cunning. He is so subtle. He is working so hard to destroy you. Do you understand that? And the only way you're really going to protect yourself is to get in a herd. Get in with the herd. There's safety in numbers here, folks. There's safety in numbers. Stay with the people. Don't let the devil get you separated up by yourself. If you get out of the herd mentality, you are ripe picking. The devil is right there to come in and tell you all kinds of self-justifications to justify why you are the way you are, why I'm good enough as I am, why I don't need to be taught anything new because I've been around a long time. Come on, I'm an old Christian. I've been here before. I read the book. Yeah, you have, and that's good. But the devil doesn't stop there. He'll keep pushing. He'll keep pounding. He'll find, he'll find your weak spot because we all have it. So what he wants, here's safety. Get in with Bible study. Come into Wednesday nights. Now, I know that some of you live a long ways away. I understand that. But come to Sunday school. Get into Sunday school. Get in and... and learn and share what God's dealing in your life because you need to share as much as you need to learn. We can learn from each other. I learn from you when we come Wednesday night Bible studies and we have discussions. Man, I love them because I'm learning from you. Here's some, here's some tests for you. Am I becoming, in the, am I in that self, 
comfort zone? Here, here, answer these questions to yourself. Are you challenging yourself? Is your personal Bible study and prayer life really significant? Is it really significant? What you say, your personal prayer life and your Bible study, is it significant? Are you hungry for the Word of God? Are you learning new things in God's Word on your own? Are you hungry for the Word of God? Is God revealing new ideas and new concepts in your life? Because I'll tell you what, I don't care how many times you've read the Word, it's alive. And it brings new revelations daily. New revelations come from the same word you've read over and over and over again. You read it over and over again, you're going to get new revelations daily because God's word is alive. Are you looking for opportunities to serve others and help other people? Are you excited about coming into group Bible studies to learn and to share? Are you hungry? Are you hungry? If I threw up a picture of a prime rib, I I like it because it's lunchtime. I know you'd all look at that and you're, you're, you would start to sal- salivate. Your, your, your glands would start thinking, I want that. If I threw up a Bible, would you want that? Would you want the Bible? Do you not understand the significance of spiritual growth is so much more important than feeding your body? But yet, but yet we're comfortable. We come Sunday morning and that's it. We come Sunday morning and maybe maybe not even consistent with that. I know I'm meddling here, but that's okay. I'm not afraid of you. I know, I know what the Lord's putting in my heart. My Lord's putting in my heart as a challenge to us to get out of the comfort zone and to be bold enough to make a stand to say, you know what, I am going to be there Wednesday nights. I'm going to be there in Sunday school. Evidence, folks. It's evidence. That's outward evidence. I know I'm getting personal. But I love you, and I think you know me well enough now to know that I love you. Jesus. See, here's, here's, here's the, the, next, the last analogy that we're going to close, because I know it's 10 after 12, and I've really gotten past my limit here. But here's the deal. Pretend for one minute, and this is dangerous, but pretend for one, one minute that you're Jesus. You're Jesus. And you now are Jesus, and this little person comes up to you that is you. If you were Jesus, how would you examine you? If everybody was like you in this church, what kind of a church would we have? If everybody was like you... Would we be growing? Would we have any consistency in our life? Or are you waiting for somebody else to pick up and do what they do because you are too busy doing something else? Come that day, folks, when Jesus says, what did you do with my son? And what was the evidence of your life? He's not going to care how busy you were. He's not going to care how many cars you had, how big your house was, how new your stuff was. He's going to care about your evidence of how you, how you got in and, and infected people's lives through your testimony. Amen. I better stop. Father, we come before you, Jesus. Lord, we come before you humbly, Lord, knowing that we've all made mistakes. 
And Lord, yes, I was a sinner saved by grace, but I am a new man today, like many others here. And now, Lord Jesus, we are just asking you to to take root in our hearts and our lives, that we clearly would have the evidence of godly living in us, that we would not be comfortable in the comfort zone any longer. God, that we would be allow we would allow ourselves to be pushed and challenged. God, that we will make a stand to say, God, I am want to learn. If I'm not hungry, listen, folks, keep your eyes closed. If you're not hungry to be on a Wednesday night Bible study, if you're not hungry to be with other people in a Bible study, maybe outside of the church, if you're not hungry to be here on Sunday mornings, if you're not hungry to be in Sunday school, can I challenge your Christianity? Can I challenge who you really are in Christ? Hunger is a sign of growth. Hunger is a sign of spiritual evidence of your life. Now, how many here want to be hungry? How many here want How many would raise your hand with me and say, I want spiritual hunger in my life, and I'm going to do whatever I have to do to get it. I am not going to allow myself to be in the comfort zone. I am going to push myself, and I'm going to allow myself to be pushed by people that love me. And I'm not going to allow the enemy to come in and keep me down and put me in that comfort zone. I am going to take a stand against the devil. Amen. Father, I thank you for your mercy and your grace. And Lord, now as, I, as we go to our homes today, I pray that this message would resonate in the hearts and lives of people. And Lord, that we would see the evidence of your grace in our life. Not that we would take advantage of your grace or trample your grace, as we easily can do, but we would allow your grace to finish its work in us, that we would be complete. Be complete, and we'd be hungry, 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 hungry. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Let's sing the song that that, uh, Jackie and uh, Scott are playing, and and let's just let the Lord uh, minister to us in this song, and then we'll pray and we'll go home.
Father, we just come before you now. We surrender our hearts and lives as we just sang this song. God, what powerful words, what meaningful words. And I pray, God, as we sang those words, that they, that was really our heart's cry. So, Lord, I pray that you go with us today. Go to our homes with us. Do not leave us, Holy Spirit. Let your spirit go with us and ride with us and be evident in our life throughout this week. We give you praise, we give you glory, and we worship your holy name. Amen and amen, amen, amen. Be blessed today.